Hello, and welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. Every little bit counts, and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. We might pick up the, the rain in the podcast, which is fine. Dude, I'm so into that. All right, you ready to do this? Probably. All right, don't laugh when I start talking, all right? <laughs> all right. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and today we have Clay Zobalak as our guest. Clay is a very unique, thoughtful, intelligent, and open guy. He has a blog at, how do you pronounce it? The audience can tell us, but I always say claycity.com, but it could be claycity.com. Okay. And Where's you, there a WordPress in there? You tell me. You got pulled up. <laughs> um, and that's spelled C-L-A-C-C-E-I-T-Y. No, I think there's an E after the A. C-L-A-E-C-C-I-E. Now you're just making fun of me for being dyslexic. No, dude, I wish I knew how it was spelled, honestly. It's some, <laughs> some Greek shit. I'd spell it for me. Dude, I don't know. Look at C L A E C C E I T Y dot WordPress dot com. Yeah, I think you got it. Um, you've also been published in the uh, Houston Press, which yeah, I, the Free Press Houston. Free it doesn't Press. exist anymore. Now it's okay. Byline Houston, and it was Free Press Houston, but they went under. So now it's Byline Houston, and I don't think my article is available now. Yeah, you can get it on my blog. Though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about what happened with that a little later. Uh, also, you have a degree. What's your degree in? Uh, I got a degree in anthropology and with a minor in philosophy from the U of H, um, University of Houston. It's a, it's a bachelor's of science. It's all science-y. Nice. Well, just to uh, give the listeners an idea of the setting right now, Clay and I are in my little studio with a bottle of tequila here. We've got a couple glasses i'm about to pour up ricea to be be exact nice you and your crew have always been extremely hospitable um i'm gonna go ahead and pour you a drink right now do it and then what is it is the ritual you pour me a drink after that you pour me a drink and then i'll pour your drink okay tell me when to stop all right right there that's my turn I'm not gonna ask you when. Just when you yeah, when no. however high it is. I think you've had you got good plenty. The way I wanna open this up is I wanna ask you, Clay, why is it important to pour each other's drinks? Um That's a good question here. Let's toast first, toast to non servium, right? Ah, oh, that's sweet, sweet Rysia. Damn, that's good. It is surprisingly good. I was not a fan of mezcals until um, I think I had this. And when actually we were served Ricea at a mezcal bar in Houston, um, 
it was or no, it was in Austin actually. We were at a we were at a mescal bar in Austin. Um, none of us thought we were gonna like it. The person kind of touted as like, oh, this is like this garbage kind of skunky drink, and I remember requesting it because of that. But I think actually it kind of became our favorite sort of mescal. Um, we serve each other, I think mainly because we're nerds and um, it's something we picked up from Ken Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy. When you say we, who are you talking about? Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, some friends in Houston, uh, Jacob Hilton, Hakanto, who you know is Michael Curtin, and uh, Megnart Shed, aka Megan Shed. Uh, those are kind of like the crew in Houston that I spend a lot of my time with other than, you know, my fiance and all of our respective partners. But those are kind of the crew of people that we tend to bounce a lot of ideas around and we try and have our little behavioral projects with one another. Um, we're trying to, um, make it happen in our own lives, kind of. I yeah. guess we are, uh, trying to see the consequences of our beliefs actually take place otherwise i don't think the beliefs have much meaning right i mean unless you can actually do something with them and if the things you can do with them don't make your life any better i'm not sure it's worth pursuing right anyway the reason we pour each other's drinks i guess other than it makes us feel like we're doing something fun or interesting is what we were talking about earlier it's uh, the gift it's a, it's a gift to another person. It's kind of like an acknowledgement of trying to serve another person, to be kind to another person, to, to give them something. I guess you just want to give people something to make them know you care about them. And even though I think both of us have already articulated that we kind of don't like giving gifts, um, there's also times when a gift is actually necessary for like the production of social relations or, the, or production of like social of society. Even. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess it's just a nice ritual to <clears throat> give each other a kind of gift in a standard way. You feel like you did something special. You yeah. feel like you did something slightly uh, mythologically like huh. relevant, maybe. And uh, we mess it up all the time. I mean, yeah. most of the times when we plan on doing it, someone will forgot. Or um, an issue we ran, on, we ran into early on is that <laughs> like we were talking about earlier, the gifts are really inefficient. And so while the first pouring for the other person can be really nice and pleasant and make you feel like you're being kind and socially integrated to each other, the problem is is sometimes you're done and you want more, but the other person doesn't notice. And so if you stayed with the other person pouring the drink, then you would have to wait for them to notice. And so originally this was an issue when we first tried, trying to do this is that you know, I would finish my drink mm -hmm. and then Hakanto would be like in the middle of like an interesting thought. And I wouldn't want to say like, you know, Hey, I need a drink. Cause then it defeats the purpose. The right. like thoughtfulness that seems inherent in the act is kind of diminished by someone being like, yo, I need the gift. Yeah. So after a while it became like, okay, once we pour the first ones, then it's a free for all. Like okay. do what you need to do because gifts are in fact quite inefficient. Right. Even if they have a role in terms of like, the production of events. Yeah. And so it's a nice feeling. It's, it feels like you're sharing something special and important. Yeah. And after a while, that's a burden. You can't, you can't share special, nice stuff right. into perpetuity or else it loses its right. novelty. It, it would be hard to, it would be hard to keep up with also, like you were saying, if, 
if I finish my drink and you didn't notice it, right? I mean, it there's a possible. So the thing is, it's a knowledge problem. There. Yeah, and also <laughs> that tends on. Um, there's the possibility of the opposite happening, because if the initial act of pouring each other a drink gives you a sense of um, reciprocal attention not noticing that the other needs that gift can almost produce a sense of um, you're not being mindful of that person. Yeah. You're neglecting that person. Yeah. So in fact, if you maintain the kind of like strict necessity of like, oh, only you can pour my drinks, I can pour your drinks, at a certain point, you'll in fact, it, it, there's more likelihood that it'll be offensive actually. Because mm-hmm. I'll be like, why hasn't Joel poured me a drink? I'm, yeah. I'm thirsty. Like, I want more I see but why isn't he giving it to me? Why isn't he giving it to me? What an asshole. He's, he's so caught up in his own thoughts. Um, yeah, so <laughs> gifts are dangerous. Yeah. Both, gifts are both powerful and that they can produce society and they can produce like interpersonal debt and bondage. But you can also present, you can create a lot of resentment. Um, and so right. I think you can only pour that first one. If you want more, you should, you got to take more, mm-hmm. but you cannot expect the gift constantly, except yeah. in like these ritualized moments. Is this a way to like appreciate it without institutionalizing it? Appreciate the importance of a gift without, without making it a, without it turning into a gift economy in other, in other yeah, ways? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's gifts are not inherently, um, a positive thing They're, they can just as easily be a, a burden or a, a means of um patronizing somebody yeah and so yeah you don't want a gift economy any more than you want to be forced to have a market economy yeah you just want to have relations and mm-hmm. so if you allow like the necessity of the gift to, to if you allow it to be the means by which all things are coordinated through mm-hmm. There's, pro- there's actually a lot of like anxiety and yeah, um, obviously <laughs> resentment. I yeah. think it's possible. So you don't want to do that. You just want to feel like a cool person yeah. who has this little fun ritual because right. then you're like, oh, who knows about this? Yeah. We know about it. Mm. You know, you don't do this with like your friends at work or other friends who aren't into this kind of weird stuff, but we do it because it's a little like in, it's, it's a, it's a performance that makes us feel like we are interacting in something distinct mm-hmm. I think I mean that's probably and that's that's totally there's negatives and positives with that right mm-hmm. there's pl- plenty of problems that can come with producing a space that's has like an in circle and an out circle and a inside and you know who your confidants and stuff like that yeah still worth it though definitely I'm glad we did it here do you think ritual is important yeah absolutely man um Ritual is, uh, ritual paces human life. You can't constantly, you know, be producing like ad hoc uh, moments that you're just choosing indefinitely. Like indefinitely, I don't think a human being can really live in a comfortable way without sort of like habituated signposts in your life that store meaning, they store like, they pace like rituals pace existence and they also um, they articulate the distinctness of a event and they're, they're anchor points for time they're anchor points for meaning 
like and everyone does this anyway like you have rituals you're going to do anyway in terms of like now i brush my teeth Mm -hmm. i mean those are kind of inconsequential in terms of like a mythological sense um but you are going to punctuate your life with these little anchors of of time like you it structures your time it structures your thought process it structures your priorities and so if you can produce rituals that have implicit meaning and have kind of uh, mythological undertones that just kind of you don't need to believe in some kind of like supernaturalism necessarily but the narrative of your existence needs to be coherent and rituals allow you an easier way to make that coherent and really explicit rituals are basically like little games that can produce meaning if you allow them or they can at least just produce regularity and time and lifestyle and those are good things to have like you should not have a kind of just well i don't know maybe you should but i certainly benefit from having little moments and behaviors that make certain moments feel um like they have meaning yeah that they're distinct that this is a certain space in time or in your your life or your day that has a distinct meaning that it expresses something to you or that you get to express something distinct about yourself or what you care about or what you're going through like the the ritual stores meaning the ritual stores like implications of how you should behave and so upon us doing this ritual of like pouring into those drinks well, I mean, there's a reason we started the podcast with it. Yeah. Right? There's a reason now that we're, like, drinking it and not just randomly having it, you know, just at a random spot. It's because, like, suddenly we feel like, oh, we'll start off with this ritual that we think is interesting, hopefully. And everything that happens from that point on is within a certain space. Like, from, Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So I think ritual is a good thing. I don't know if it's necessary. I'm sure... if. If I claim such a thing, a million people would object, probably rightfully so, but it has it has utility and it has like undeniable power, I would say. You know? yeah. if, what's, I mean, if a human being responds to a certain innate, like if there's a certain innate reaction to certain kinds of behavior, even if it's learned, I guess it wouldn't be innate then, but if you react to something learned or not because it takes place you might as well use those things for your benefit uh-huh. uh, otherwise you'll most likely be interacting with them without your consent or without your interest and in doing so you'll just be um, the pacing of your existence may not be your own choosing and right. so upon choosing your own rituals you can choose the kind of little anchors of meaning in your existence and sure. the pacing of your day or the pacing of your week or month or your marriage or your you know, parented, something like that. And so, yeah, 100%. They, there's no reason to deny the bizarre religious instinct, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with saying that. The kind of, the, the desperate need to produce meaning. Yeah. And, and through act, an act can produce a lot of meaning. And so you might as well take advantage of it. I don't, yeah. I don't see why not. Hey. What's the, I mean, because I think the negative reaction would be everyone is reacting to, um, you know, painful instances of ritual in their life. Like if you're suffering from a kind of a religious background that harmed you, rituals may seem bound up with 
the things that you are fleeing or the things you're trying to heal from. And so it, it's easy to toss out the, you know, the baby or whatever. But um, toss, toss out uh, religiosity or toss out the importance of ritual? I don't know that there, there's much difference, right? Like, hmm. I mean, ritual can be... Def- <laughs> yeah, who knows what religion means, right? Is religion like the, a body of beliefs and institutions that make claims about the order of the universe? Or is religion just the kind of symbolic narrative um, aspect of our existence? I don't really know. I don't think it's a good answer. But... You can, you can enjoy ritual without necessarily binding it up with what we usually think of as like organized religion or dogma or things like that. You can, you can participate in mythological, symbolic, and ritualistic behavior without those things actually having a kind of supernatural or grand control of your existence. Like you can be the origin of the meaning and the point of a ritual, and in doing so, you kind of you personally control your existence. No, I, I hear you. Are you a fan of uh, um, Joseph Campbell at all? Yeah, of course, man. Here with a thousand faces. I read. Uh, I haven't read a thousand faces, but I've read the uh, like the Power of Myth and stuff like that. That great interview. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I like to think of Joseph Campbell as sort of <clears throat> doing what Jordan Peterson has always tried to do, but never <laughs> actually accomplished. Uh, also, without all like the. The, the ridiculous political baggage attached to it. Yeah, it's so polluted with all the little nasty things that are reasonably, you know, upsettable. Yeah, Joseph Campbell, um, he seems to have benefited from kind of the analysis of myth and kind of like trying to find meaning. Because if you asked him, he does get asked in the power of myth, like, do, do you actually believe in the supernatural and stuff like that? And he's like, no, no, right. of course not. He's like, right. no, we're, we're just a bunch of like goo. Yeah. And, um, but clearly he thinks it's like a useful thing you need to know about. And uh-huh. that it clearly has an emotional, like, uh, people vibe. If you write a good story that taps into like, I, what I think they almost think of as like Jungian archetypes and, mm-hmm. Uh, these like universal narratives of the hero and the crone and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, he seems to think that, yeah, there's like a fundamental, there's yeah. like a latent power, you know, you, you can like manipulate people and people can help themselves and change their lives by tapping into what seem to be fundamental stories in you know, human society. And yeah, totally. Of course. Right. Like those are, you should absolutely get yeah. into that. that. There's no reason to not tap into that aspect of your life, especially <laughs> if you do it willingly. If, if you can produce your own stories and you can, if, if you can acknowledge that you were the source of your personal myths and the personal symbols that give you meaning, um, you know, you're, you're all the more powerful. Like you'll become more adept at producing a life that you want to live, I think. Yeah. Because um, you have a grab bag, you know, like you have a magic bag of, full of tools that are psychological and mythological to kind of get you through your day. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I often see people who suffer from a lack of these things because they don't, you don't want to acknowledge meaningful tropes and symbols and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's like um, modernity can drag us down to the level of a kind of like atomization, like a, a secular atomization that, that, doesn't allow us to experience like it doesn't even give us the opportunity to construct meaning and right. ri- and ritual ritual might be one of those ways 
one of those small ways in which we can actually experience something like that. Yeah, definitely. In fact, um, I think this is one of the problems with the dialogue about like postmodernism and post-structuralism is the way I hear people critique postmodernism all the time is that it produces no sense of meaning or it produces no sense of like all, everything is true. Nothing is true. There's no reason to believe this or that or to behave a certain way. Um, where I feel the exact opposite. I think that if you fully embrace like the lessons of postmodernity, you can kind of take a, you can, you can um, fully saturate yourself in a kind of skepticism towards narrative and structures of like the power of uh, the stories and narratives that kind of control your life and order your life. You can accept those things as ways of controlling you and ways of articulating your life for you and stuff like that. Cause I think that's the main, that is usually the critique that's leveled at postmodernism. I think is that it destroys meaning and order because it just, it's a constant critique and skepticism towards narrative and towards, um, any basis of decision making or teleology or something like that it's like yeah. all stories all narratives all structures are inherently oppressive and here's the means by which they do it blah blah and so everyone's kind of like oh upon assuming that or believing that you're left like listless you're left um, you know <laughs> without a paddle and I don't think that's true at all I think I think that's an, a kind of a necessary step to go through in terms of making a life that you want to live you, there's no there's no escape from being a human being. Is uh, you have to have a narrative to your existence. I think I've never met a person that didn't, or if I did, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But you need to have a kind of story to your existence. You need to have a way to produce meaning and drive and justification for your actions or or ways to cope with your actions. And if you can fully digest, not fully, if you can adequately digest postmodernism and poststructuralism. You can come out the other end not rejecting narrative, but selecting and creating and being judicious. Like, you can be like, this is good, this is bad, that's a dumb thing to believe, this is a good thing to believe, there's a good reason for this ritual, that's a ritual I should get rid of. You can kind of produce a good, paced existence that gives you meaning and helps you deal with pain and not have it lorded over you. Like, it's not something that you receive from on high. That owns you. Yeah, yeah, you own it. And so upon you controlling narrative and reality and being comfortable with that and knowing that meaning resides in you and that narrative resides in you and the people around you, like you produce it together, of course, um, you're going to have a much more powerful life, I think. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to not do that, I don't think, as far as I can tell. Yeah. (laughs) So this is like... um... Everything you were just saying about meaning and about meaning to me seems to be in stark contrast with nihilism. Um, which, I can never tell what people mean by nihilism. You know, the rejection of like even trying to pursue meaning, like and uh, understanding that. Uh, <laughs> Good like, luck. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, it seems almost like an impossible project. Um, but I mean, I don't, I don't want to like put you in a box, but you. Are you an egoist? If so, how is that? Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people associate egoism with nihilism. They s- yeah, it's bizarre. So it's the, it should be the opposite. Yeah. So how? Point out like the ways in which those might de- be different, and also what egoism to, is to you, maybe. Right. No, I don't think I would call myself an egoist. 
Um, simply because you can't be a good egoist and call yourself an egoist, I would say, right? Because <laughs> you're like, you're suddenly, the spook is egoism, right? You're so, like calling yourself a Sternerite <laughs> would imply a kind of allegiance to like Sterner's beliefs and that those things are interesting of their own merit, which I think is the core of Sternerism um, or Sterner's thought that nothing should make a claim to its interestingness on its own merits. It's only interesting in terms of what, if you find it interesting. Uh So, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't call myself an egoist, but I would say, but I would say in the same way that postmodernism is a good thing for people to engage with and then get on with their lives. You shouldn't, I can't remember who said it, but you know, like when you use a ladder to get higher, to get to like a second story or something like that, you don't necessarily take the ladder with you. Once you're where you get to, once you get to where you're trying to get to, you abandon the ladder. You don't need it anymore. Like, you got to where you need to go. Mm-hmm. And so I think egoism and post-structuralism, post-modernism are ways to try and actually acknowledge what seems to be the actual case, the actual reality of human existence, which is that we need story and we need meaning and we need narrative. You cannot exist without these. Like, the symbolic realm of human reality is a fundamental part of being a human being. And human beings who are denied access to symbolism, like children who are kept in closets or feral children, are they're not really human beings. Um, not in like the, the sense that we can meaningfully interact with them. Because to be a human being requires a full immersion and fluency in large sets of symbols and narratives. And egoism, or Sterner's thought, is a, is a weapon to fight against those narratives and those symbols dominating you for those things like enthralling you to their own interests right because like sterner has a famous quote about like what is god interested in or what is society interested in right they're interested in their own self they're self-interested and you should be self-interested too so i think that egoism for me is valuable not as a not as an identity there's no identity there if you rested in that you would, I think, be violating the point of egoism. You, there's no... Egoism is not a house. It's not, it's not an identity. It is a hatchet. You know, mm. It's a hatchet to cut at things that bind you, the tethers that bind. Egoism allows you to liberate yourself from believing things ought to be interesting to you or that you ought to care about them or that certain rituals ought to be interesting or that they should have a place in your life. But there's no, if they do not benefit you, there's no reason to let them into your life. And so egoism is a good way to produce the life you want to live by being able to disregard or abandon certain sets of narrative and symbols and sources of meaning that actually may be painful or maybe stultifying or maybe harmful. If Christianity has harmed you, and you can imagine no way to benefit from it, you don't need to believe that it is the source of meaning. Egoism is self-help. That's it. Like, it's not a place to produce an identity the way that communism may be, or liberalism, or Christianity. Egoism is a, uh, it's a toolkit to assess reality, and then upon assessing it, get on with your life in a good way. But I don't think one should rest in it. I don't, I don't know if there's any real utility in calling oneself an egoist, that one can't get from calling themselves a Christian or a liberal or a conservative or something like that. And I think those, um, 
your identity is a prison, right? Who you are is a prison and you're going to have that. You're going to be in a prison either way, but you should at least build your own prison if you can. Egoism gives you the ability to change it, I guess. But being an egoist, I don't think is very useful. Just saying like, oh, I'm an egoist. Right. Well, I, that doesn't tell me anything about you. That doesn't tell me what you care about other than that you care about trying to not care about things that people told you to care about. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. You know? Yeah. So, but there's no denying that every egoist I've ever met was a human being. Mm -hmm. And every human being I've ever met was a primate. And they were a primate that needs symbolic reality more than any of the primate. That's just the human condition as far as I can tell. Mm. And so there's no egoist who doesn't have to have a symbolic landscape that they call home. Right. And so you should, you should think of your, you should, your identity maybe should be that symbolic landscape and that set of meanings and reactions that you care about, that you want to guide your life, that you want to force on other people, because you will. But there's no home in egoism. There's no identity there. There's no, there's no identity in egoism that doesn't, I think, violate the point of egoism. So it's a great tool, but it's not a place to, to rest. If you do rest there, I think you you may not be making a lush, interesting life. You may just be enjoying the violence you can do to the old things that harmed you or the old things that blinded you or something like that, right? Because like, it seems like Stirner was often reacting to Christianity or he was reacting to kind of uh, authoritarian socialism. And he's, I mean, he said himself, it's no, it's no enemy of socialism or anything like that. It is the enemy of sacred or sacred socialism or sacred things, like what should be interesting in of itself. And egoism is a tool. It's not a place to rest. It's, there's, there's no, it's not fertile ground, but it is a shovel, you know, to, yeah. make, to help you make fertile ground to live in, I guess. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if this is going to be an interesting question for you. Think about it in whatever way you'd like, symbolic or otherwise. <laughs> but this is what popped in my head when you were when you were talking about egoism and Christianity. Does God say it because it's true, or is it true <laughs> because God says it? Oh man, that's interesting. Um, I think if I was a if I was a diehard Christian, the answer, of course, would be it's true because God says it. Meaning. I think to like a fundamentalist, someone who believed that, that there really was a creator who produced reality, then clearly God, God is the origin, the progenitor of all things. So I'd say in terms of Christian theology, it's, it's normally that it's true because God says it. If it's the otherwise, it's that kind of like... It's something, it's, something that precedes God. Yeah, or it's, it's just that, it's that fun little Truth thing like, God. can a God make a four-sided triangle? Right. And I would say... In theology, yes. yes he, indeed he can. You yeah. Know, uh, or it. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely is. that It's true because God says it. If it is true because God says it, does that not then make God an egoist symbol? <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> well, it, he, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I mean, the, there's a the possibility that like egoism... And Stirner, Stirnerite thought has within it the possibility that's like, oh, you should do what you're interested in. And it may interest you to oppress other people and bind them to your will and stuff like that. But I think I'm no Stirner expert. 
Mm-hmm. But I think he actually addresses this. I think he actually says that God is an egoist. Right, yeah, and yeah. And that you shouldn't bind He's yourself. He's concerned only with, his, his, with right. his cause. I think he says, like, goodness, you know, like, you should be... He's like, all these things want you to be concerned with them. You know, society or the good mm-hmm. cause or God. And it's like, they're just egoists. I mean, and in a sense, yeah, Christianity has a kind of egoist at the top. Everyone else is like a suffering or... But I mean, it, maybe they have a point. If... If an egoist did create reality, it may just be the case that the only way to be happy as a creation of this like hyper egoist would be deference. What could you do? Maybe that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> so well, and, and, and to, like to Sterner maybe let's say if the Christian God's real, yeah, and Sterner is correct in his assessment of that God, he may be he may be justified in his irritation. But he may be wrong as assessment of how a human should act. If that God really exists, what are you going to do? Like, we are supposed to become like God. <laughs> right. I don't know about that much. We I are mean, to be within Christianity. Right. But so isn't, doesn't it like the... Then we are to be egoistic and not be concerned oh, with Oh, I see cause. what you're saying. Oh, interesting. So maybe the only people that make it to heaven are like... The, most, <laughs> the most Christian person is the atheist. Oh, uh, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> Well, I mean, not even not even necessarily an atheist, right? Because like you can still yeah, yeah, believe. Yeah. I sure. think there's something called like antitheism or eight. Yeah. There's things in which like there is a set of beliefs in which you recognize the existence of a creator deity or even the Christian deity, but you like don't. You're kind of like whatever, or I'm opposed to it. You can almost exist. I would say if that's the case, and you're supposed to be like God, but you can't deny God's existence at that point. You would just have to be an egoist. Despite God, mm-hmm. and at that point, when you and when God notices you actually denying His mandates, then He'd be like, "Nice, <laughs> nice, well done." <laughs> yeah, maybe that, dude, you're you're gonna produce a whole theological school here. Oh my God, ego is Christianity. See, I've heard the same. I've heard a, a similar thing said about Nietzsche before. That- but then, could you say that Christ was like an ultimate ego? Like he was the egoist of his time? Was Christ an egoist? Did he achieve that? Was Christ actually just a thrall to the egoist monarch in the sky? Christ is altruism that had to die. And, okay, I'm just bullshitting here. Dude, we're both bullshitting. what 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 if Christ was altruism that had to be sacrificed? Once it was sacrificed, only then could it ascend to become one with the egoist. You're saying that, like, the Christ figure added altruism to the, the egoist? Christ is the human. The human aspect of... Christ is humanism. Oh, interesting. Christ is sacrifice. Christ is giving yourself to things that are beyond you. Oh. Despite oh, you, to oh, wait, your own so self-detriment. That, like, the, the Christ event... Was, was a kind of like addition to egoism that yeah. in fact it like it's it's like an addendum to egoism that that altruism or compassion was added to the egoist cause aka god's cause they were producing like jolarian christianity right now i love it i don't know i guess i, I mean, i'm just i literally have not given any thought no, to this before no, this moment. i've never had this but thought i, I was just thinking life. like what if what if what if god was or what if jesus was a symbol of Humanism and specifically, <laughs> specifically, 
or humanist altruism that has to die. It has to die in order for other people to become one with God also. Meaning oh, like, for other like people just, to realize you mean, them. You mean, okay. <laughs> Wait, so you mean that the Christ event was, in fact, just a kind of like God's making an example of altruism? Sure. That God's like, like that. see what happens. Like, don't you fools realize that like being compassionate destroys you? <laughs> <laughs> Not being compassionate, but like being... Altruistic to the point of self-deprecation, to the point of not being the custodian of your own meaning, but giving yourself to something else, to giving yourself to humanity, just as Christ did. So what you're saying that said, so the the project God had was not to send or to be someone for you to emulate, but to be a lesson for what happened if you emulated this person. So it's like, veganism yeah. is good, you need to be like me and become yeah. self-interested. And here's an example of people who right. take non-self-interest. When God becomes flesh, God becomes human. The human cause is a narrative <laughs> that is imposed on you that you must sacrifice right. in order to become like God and not concerned with his narrative. Dude, Vatican III right now. <laughs> Vatican III. You're like, this is a revolution in Christian theology. Here's the problem, though. Um, I think one of the biggest problems with the interpretation of Stirner, or like a light interpretation of egoism, is that self-interest it has some kind of conflict with compassion and it doesn't it's a weird thing i think it's just an artifact of like the english language maybe um that selfishness inherently means to people disregard for the concerns of other people but i don't think it has to be like i think it's the synthesize those two for me well so <laughs> There's no reason to think that being self-interested has anything to do with disregarding other people. In fact, I think to claim otherwise is actually... You cannot deny that you are a primate or a human primate. And the human primate and its makeup needs other people. You don't care about people because you were taught to. You care about people because it's like it's part of your makeup as a human being to, to not care about what other people think, to not feel their suffering and their joy is inhuman. Like most humans have that as a normal capacity. If you don't have it, it's a, it's aberrant. So as far as I'm aware, the only egoists that exist are human beings. And that means that the only egoists exists are these kind of hive primates that need each other that need to care about one another and that when they don't care about one another they will suffer greatly you'll be treated as as an asshole or a psychopath or a sociopath you you can't escape being a human being at least not yet right maybe with the singularity and uh post-humanism and stuff like that there's some way to escape being a homo sapien a hominid but right now you can only be an egoist as a human being. And it's just a matter of fact that being a human being comes with certain preoccupations, which is mainly other human beings. There's just all human beings normally have an obsession with other human beings. And if you want to be an egoist, you don't get to delete that because it's not something you chose. You didn't choose to be a, a socially constructed hominid. Uh, you may choose to endeavor to the egoist point 
in terms of the production of a life that follows what you were interested in. But you cannot choose what you were interested in, right? And this is like an old, this is a, a never-ending philosophical debate. It's like, you know, where does free will exist? Can you produce your own interests? I don't think you can. Um, you come preset with certain human desires. And, and one of those things is that humans need humans. They are obsessed with other humans. And so my point being, all this is that there's no reason to think that compassion and altruism are in fact antithetical to the egoist cause. Egoism does not imply selfishness in the sense of the individual regardless of its social milieu. That's impossible. Like I don't think that's even a coherent... <laughs> Anyone who thinks that I think is just like tragically ignorant of the human situation, which is that humans, humans construct humans. You're not a human being if you weren't exposed to other human beings. And so altruism and compassion and interest in the other and concern for the other and um, feeling what other people feel and the theory of mind, like the my belief that when I look at you right now across the room, there's an actual, in, there's like a witness. There's a witness experiencing looking at me. And I'm constantly going through this process of imagining what you're going through. And it, 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 I'm like enthralled to it. I can't not pay attention to that. If I was someone who could not pay attention to what you're going through, I would be like a sociopath or something. Or I'd be inhuman. Or, I don't know. Um, but it's alien to me. So, to get back to the egoism thing. Egoism... It's only a supplement to the things that you can do and believe. It's not a replacement for human nature. And I use that term, I don't like that term, human nature. People misuse it or it means whatever people want it to mean. But you cannot replace being a hominid with egoism. It's impossible. You can only digest egoism as a meaningful set of actions to produce a life you want. But you cannot escape being a human being, at least not yet. And if that's the case, compassion is part of the package. And altruism is part of the package. Altruism is, a, is an easy way to, to make meaning in your life. It's an easy way to feel good. It's an easy way to, to go to sleep at night and feel okay with yourself. Uh, it's an easy way to enjoy a good time. Like, the, you have received me here. You, like, you have, you've done countless compassionate things for me since I've been in your company just today. Um, how could you otherwise, right? Like, you, if you didn't, you know, I would leave or something like that. All of this to say that egoism does not imply selfishness in the sense of the disregard for the other or a lack of compassion. It almost implies that those things will be important to you no matter what, in some way, and you need to find ways of expressing those things that are that are nice for you. You cannot escape being a human being, which is a creature with certain qualities. So if you do embrace egoism, compassion is part of the package. That compassion is not antithetical to the ego. The unique, the witness inside of you is not a rational actor, it is an animal. The witness is an animal, and the animal cares about other animals like it, and so you'll never escape it. And in fact, to deny that, I think, is to deny the best parts of what egoism could give you, which is you know, why you care about your partners and your family and your friends. It isn't necessarily, it may be some kind of sense of loyalty that's like a stern and spook, like a stern right spook or whatever, 
But it also could be that as a human creature, you you belong to other people. Other people make you and you make them and you necessarily have debts to them and interests in them and you can't just give that up by believing. Otherwise, you, you would just suffer. You would be like lying to yourself. It would be, all, it would be a total fabrication to say that like, you could somehow exist independently to the full extent that a human being can. Also, you could argue it's not in your interest to... to yeah, 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 God, that's the best way to say it. it is not, yeah, you said it better than I did. It's not in your interest to be self-centered or to be callous or to be without compassion. Without empathy. Yeah. yeah. You, the full expression of the unique or the witness or the ego is its, like, delightful interaction and concern with the other ego is it, it thinks exists outside of it, which I think they do, probably. I think you're in this room with me. I hope so. It is so strange that you say that. Um, I actually briefly touched on, like, uh, some solipsism yesterday <laughs> with, with, uh, with Jason. Not yesterday, the other day when I, when I interviewed uh, Jason. And we were talking about sort of, like, the roots of, like, these primary philosophical concerns that sort of go unaddressed when we're when we're constructing, um, like, an ethics or something like that. Mm -hmm. And one of those things, which is really uncomfortable to talk about, which most people don't even consider is a legitimate thing to discuss, is whether or not anyone exists outside of me. And I believe that people do exist outside of me, but I'm not going to act like I know that, because I am not able to measure that. If these primary philosophical concerns that come before... Um, constructing an ethics or anything like that aren't addressed and can't be known. All of your knowledge, everything that you understand, exists within the parameters of not knowing. Uh, I don't think it's absurd to acknowledge, you know, the Cartesian problem of like brain in a vat, or God's playing a trick on you, or it's all like you know this is all your production that you don't actually exist. There's only a singular witness that's just making up everything. It's good to like bump into that, but um, what's the point? Like at a certain point, right? I can't remember who said it. I wish I could. Oh, Kiki. Sorry, my cat just fell off. <laughs> <laughs> what have you done, you egoist? There is a. I I think it's. Let me just say something briefly. Have you heard the here's a hand argument? No. The what? The here's a hand argument? No. I I had this guy as... I interrupted you, I know. I apologize for interrupting you. But I think it's worth it. I can't remember who the guy's name is. I had him as my profile picture for the philosopher, you know, as a month of the month, whatever. Um, but he has an argument, which is just a rebuke of this kind of like universal skepticism. Like, are you skeptical of everything? And his argument was simply like... Does an external world exist? My yeah, his, his, he's like, yes. Here's how I know. Here's a hand. Here's another hand. It, like, is a hand part of external reality? Yes. Well, your sensory experience tells you. Yeah, because he's like, if, if you don't, he's like, do you have more evidence to believe in the existence of the hand? Or do you have more evidence to believe in the lack of its external existence? And he's like, yeah, much more reason because to believe you're experiencing it. Actually, it. Yeah, yeah, there's evidence for it. There yeah. is evidence for it. The evidence for the lack of it is not evidence. It's just logical fallibility in the reasoning. What about that? Things. What about that which goes beyond the tips of your fingers? 
What's, there's no difference. I mean, you know, I, I can see the hand and I can see you and I can see the, the wall. I can see the cat and I can see the light and I can see the Rysia. You just have data, right? Like you just have this hallucinatory reality and it may be a production. It may be false, but there's more reason to believe it's not. Or you have more reason to believe that it's there and it is the case that things are in some way reflective you. of what you're experiencing. I'm with you. Yeah, so he basically, and I think that's the best way to go about it. Joel's giving us some more. He's giving me the gift. This shit is so good. <laughs> what is this? Good? This is, uh, it's Ricea from, I think the company is uh, Venenosa. And I think this, it's the orange bottle. It's the good stuff because it has that kind of skunky, meaty. This is the of, best. Dude, it's so good. It's, it, I was told when I was first served something like it that it would be nasty and funky. But yeah. the funkiness is great. It's like durian. Are you an anarchist? I don't know. Maybe not. I used to call myself an anarchist a lot. I think the main benefit of anarchism, it makes you feel cool, and it's a weapon against the complacency of other people. I think any person who considers himself an anarchist would probably, if they engage me, would probably feel, yes, this person qualifies as an anarchist. Um, but the problem with anarchism is that it's you can make it into an identity all of itself, right? Like you can you can rest in anarchism, and you can serve some kind of anarchist project, but um, it, <laughs> this cat is the ultimate anarchist. <laughs> uh, what's the point? Right? Like, what's the point of being an anarchist? Is it why even call yourself an anarchist? Like, why does it? Because it's life? it's communicating that you want to live in a world without the state, without economic systems that yeah, that's a good point. push you around and coerce you. <laughs> yeah, well said. And it clearly communicates, well, maybe not to everyone because a lot of people identify anarchism with chaos, right? They see it interchangeable with yeah, I mean, that's the, the, problem, man, right? the bad man who wants to throw the Molotov cocktail at the peaceful people in the park. Yeah, you're making... But... Calling yourself an anarchist has a big cost, right? Right, right. But that doesn't mean that um, necessarily that we can't take that back and and let them know, hey, look, actually, that that O outside of the A means order. Right. And um, it's really about an understanding that things can be better and there's there's ways of organizing without hierarchical, top-down, command and control, coercive institutions yeah. that monopolize arbitrary areas. You're right, but every anarchist would like to believe that it's possible to not have the things that they don't like, right? Like, anarchism itself is just an articulation of... It's a reactionary statement, right? Anarchism is inherently reactionary. Like, it, it is... It is... It is, a, I think, a normal human response to inhumane behavior from people and institutions made of people, right? Like, there's, <laughs> without the state, there's no anarchists. Anarchists are just a kind of soot. Um, it, as long as you have authority and power and, and behavior and the imposition of power into people's lives, you will have anarchism. In the same way, as long as you have a fire, you will have soot. Anarchists are a necessary byproduct of all institutions, especially the, the very coercive, dumb, blunt institutions that you know, rule our lives for the most part now. 
Um, but it's anarchism is chiefly concerned with aggression towards the oppressor, or it's chiefly concerned with methodology to liberate oneself from oppressive situations and blah, blah, but, but there's no coherent, like, positive vision usually or or if there is it's just another imposition of um, norms and narratives and power like anarcho-syndicalism proposes different power structures but they still are power structures and maybe they're better maybe they really are better or maybe market anarchism proposes a new world but it still imposes it still pr proposes different power structures, different ways that people will be bound to norms and consequences and institutional violence. And um, I don't know that that can be escaped. Like, I, think, I think anarchism is a normal thing. Like, if every person was an anarchist, it would be understandable given what people are exposed to because this is just not... The normal way of life right now is not what the human creature, I think, was created via um, whatever method was used to create human beings. Pro probably, I think, uh, natural selection, sexual selection, and kind of collaborative cooperation of a creature, blah, blah, blah. Um, states and um, capitalism, these are like super novel experiences for the human animal. And there's every reason to think that the human animal should be upset about this and concerned about this. Yes. Anarchism is egoism uh, in the sense that anarchism is a, is a reaction to and a dismissal of systems of, of, of control and societal order that may or may not be what you prefer and may or may not be what benefit you. And in the same way that I think you probably should not rest your identity in egoism there's probably similar problems of resting your identity in anarchism because anarchism tends to not always it tends to focus on freedom from freedom from reaction to oppression reaction to domination but it rarely lays out it, it rarely lays out like the positive vision of like here's how your life could be Here's the kind of things you could wake up and do every day. Um, and in fact, most anarchisms, when they do do this, will try and propose a whole world. Anarcho-syndicalism or primitivist anarchism or market anarchism are telling you, here's how things should be. You should abide by certain beliefs and behaviors so that you can live in a proposed society or proposed world. But there's good reason to think that not everyone will like that. And there's good reason to think that society may be in like the human society is not a human project. It's just a human consequence and that we do not have the ability to actually coherently produce society with our decisions uh, or our intentional decisions. Society comes about just as a consequence of our behavior, not as a consequence of our actual designs. And so I think anarchism is a danger to a lot of people because you can allow anarchism to become an identity. You can allow anarchism to be its own structure. It can, you can let, anarchism can, will tell you what to do. Every, most anarchists I've met 
want to tell you what to do. They want to tell you how to be. They want to produce a society for you. Most anarchists want to do something with you. And that is, that is antithetical to what I think is valuable about anarchism. The core of anarchism should not be a project in the sense of a future society that can be made. The value of anarchism should be the empowerment of the human animal to make the life it wants to live. And part of that, and a lot of that life is not up to the human being because human beings are produced by other you know, evolution and human, other human beings make human beings. When I'm around anarchists, it's more fun to deny being an anarchist. When I'm around non-anarchists, it's more fun to call myself an anarchist. And I, I have no scruples with that contradiction. I am only interested in anarchism insofar that it helps me get to whatever utopia I personally want to live in. And maybe even the utopia I want to force on other people. But am I an anarchist? For the sake of this podcast, it's cooler for me to say that I'm an anarchist. I'm a reaction to anarchism at this point. It's more interesting for me to say, I think, that one must produce an anarchism against anarchy. Or you must produce an anarchism against anarchism. Or <laughs> your behavior should be an anarchy against the structures of anarchism. Because it's just as, it, for the most part, most people are proposing stuff that they want to do to you. And so, I don't... All right, well... <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I know I'm, I'm repeating myself, but... I mean, an anarchism against anarchy... But at the same time, you were saying, like, anarchism is, like, simply reactive. So you're reacting against reaction. I think the core of it is is reactionary. What about this, though? The only anarchism worth having is an anarchism that posits the freedom for. And understands... I I agree 100%. Additionally, understands that anarchism ought not to be a utopia that you fetishize in the distant future, but also something that you live and also something that you do in the here and now uh, yeah 100 percent. in fact it's, it's more valuable in terms of like anarchism is more interesting and more valuable if it affects how you behave right now if it's the, if it's just like a, a code of of interaction with real or if it if it flavors and guides your interaction with reality and other people i 100 percent. I, I think that's great i, I love it yeah <laughs> but that does not necessarily keep you from attempting to, 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 to do with other people what your fantasies of them doing has them doing. Like, I, I, well, if you want them to, all right, so this is, would be the distinction that I would make. You can lord over people, you can dominate them, you can coerce them into doing what you want them to do, or you can cooperate with them in one way or another. And it seems to me that the latter is what anarchism is for. Is it? I think so. I think I think the entire for me the entire project of anarchism is to live with in a world not only without domination but with cooperation, right? Sure, it's it's rejecting something in one hand, but in the I have another hand, and it's proposing something else. So I think the problem comes in where it's like that, where it's when you're proposing cooperation that's so vague just as domination might be, but it's so vague that it doesn't actually, it might be a cop-out for, um, for articulating specifically what it is that you want freedom for. So when you start talking about freedom for, you have to get really specific. And when you start to get really specific, it, I want, I want healthcare. I want to, I want to be healthy. I want 
defense. I want to be able to defend myself. I want the the freedom to experience friendship with others. But the key is I want those things and I want them without denom- uh, without domination. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I do. Yeah, 100%. I'm smelling what you're stepping in. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, dude, Sterner has a great, um, I don't know which part of the unique of its properties and I think it might be an ownness. Maybe not. But there's a part where he says something like, when you want the freedom to have, you know, cake or bread or something like that, He's like, do you really want the freedom? Or do you want, do you the, want bread? the bread? And it's like, of course you want the bread. You know, you, you certainly want the freedom to get it, but the, the real end goal is the bread. Um, and I guess I'm being difficult just because <laughs> it's, it's something that's not acknowledged enough is that most anarchists have an ism and that ism they don't budge on, right? Like, um, especially social anarchists. Are, are very aggressive about the denial of the existence of, of markets. And market anarchists will balk, I think, at a lot of uh, primitivist desires, and primitivists will, you know, dismiss just about everything. The, I, anarchism is great. I love anarchism. Anarchism has, in a sense, set me free in a lot of ways. But it is not going to get you to the promised land, and it may... Anarchism brings with it the danger of, of anarchism being the thing to, to make other people comply with. You need to behave in some way that I consider free or that I consider just or I consider equal. Like, but those things are meaningless outside of the context that humans produce for them. I, Hakanto, ha, I think, said it well, and I think it's the, it's the basis for how I think about freedom, which is that freedom is only meaningful in terms of what I consider free and what the other people I interact with consider free. Like, I can't console myself with like, oh no, I'm treating people in a way that makes them free without without acknowledging what that person considers to be a state of freedom or a state of equality or something like that. So the problem, the, the, the greatest threat of anarchism is the belief that, that upon claiming to be some kind of anarchist, you have released yourself from the response or from the possibility of oppressing people, right? How many times, did I can't tell you how many times that I've tried to articulate to an anarcho-syndicalist or an anarcho-communist or an a market anarchist or whatever, the inherent uh, authority and imposition and what they plan to do with other people. And they just dismiss it because they're like, oh no, like in this state that I have planned for you, is true freedom or is true equality. You can't object to it because it is just matter of fact free or equal. And so they they think because they have the word anarcho in front of whatever they're into, they don't have to deal with the inherent authority and violence and imposition inherent in their utopia. Upon putting the utopian practice into place, <laughs> they are the kings, they, they're the masters <laughs> forcing this reality. So anarchism is only meaningful, I think. If, Anarchism is best, which is just a guideline for attempting to interact with other people, not as an end goal. You don't know where you're going to get. You're never going to get what you want, but you might get what you need. <laughs> and anarchism is, can probably give that to you. Egoism can probably give it to you. You can get what you need, and what you need can, can be great. But you're, you may not get like the syndicalist utopia. And there's a good chance if you really force the situation or really force the matter, 
the anarcho with the fun of it would be meaningless, right? So am I an anarchist? I'm an anarchist in the same way that I'm an egoist and that I embrace them and I try to move on. And if it doesn't make my life better, you should just throw it away. What's the point? You know? So, I don't know. Yeah. I'm being argumentative, but I, no, think, it's, okay. I think it's worth it. It's, 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 a, it's a blind spot, I think, for most anarchists. So, yeah. Let me ask you. You might, you might have just already answered this question, but um, what is post-anarchism? God. <laughs> uh, what is post-anarchism? Um, yeah, you know, maybe we did go kind of over it. Um, if we did, we can move on to something else. Yeah, I mean, I would just... So, yeah, I mean, there's no way I'm going to talk your ear off about it again. But uh, yeah, I think it is something along the lines of like, anarchism should should give you a kind of launching pad away from, you know, oppression and authoritarian kind of stuff. And uh, it should give you psychological and social room to start making the the life you want to live, kind of for the society that you want to live in, however small or large that would be. But, you know, there's, there's no one... And anarchism doesn't have any, like, inherent trajectory to it. Or at least it doesn't have an inherent trajectory to something, but it does have a trajectory kind of away from something. But, I mean, you can run away from anything in any direction. It doesn't imply a positive state of existence. Like, here's the kind of society you want to live. Because at some point, you will have to articulate, this is how I want to live my life. This is how I want to treat people. This is what I want to feel like when I wake up. This is what I want to spend my time doing. And, uh, you know... That's a different discussion. That's a different. Uh, <laughs> that's a different set of like attempts to convince people of stuff. But it's different from the convincing people the state is largely negative or oppressive. It's di- it's different from saying capitalism is a significant uh, burden to the species. So post anarchism, I would say, would you would see post anarchism when you saw people really trying to live out their lives in a kind of stateless, non-capitalist, non-authoritarian way, you'd be like, oh, those people are doing what I would consider post-capitalism or post-anarchism, but they wouldn't call it that, right? They'd be like, oh, we're making a town or a society or we're making a business or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just you know, post-anarchism will be whatever people do once they've realized that you can only reject stuff for so long until you have to project yeah things yeah. I guess right like what's the point like <clears throat> again yeah always what's the point what are you doing like I understand we're upset I'm upset too but to what end right and <clears throat> you'd be surprised how how rarely people think about that it's kind of like a constant internal joke amongst us in Houston is uh <laughs> what is what does a day in your utopia look like what is it like when you wake up? Smoke weed and play bass. Dude, yes, I think you've heard this. <laughs> yes, people have, upon upon being forced to interact with this, an incredible amount of people will be like, tend to my weed plants, I play the bass. <laughs> There's just a kind of like insane hollow. It, it, that's a, yeah, it's a running joke. But that's like, I mean, think about the implications of that, right? Like, there's a good chance that like 90% of everyone interested in this kind of thing really don't know what would be at the other side of it. Mm-hmm. They just know that they can have meaning and have a life and have an identity so long as they're like 
an anarchist and do anarchy stuff. But no one ever is like, what if you get it? What if you win? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? What do you, what do you have in mind for me? Um, and that's, a, that's probably a more important question in the end, right? Like you catch more, you catch more flies with honey than you do vinegar. People are more interested in a positive vision of, of what their life can be like than what they should be upset about. Maybe not. Maybe that's foolish to say. But it's certainly, I'm interested in that. Like, what, what can you give me? That's what I want to hear. I'm, I've heard enough of what I should be upset about. Right? And so mm-hmm. at a certain point, I think post-anarchism is just, uh, you've heard enough. There's, I've heard enough. I've heard the primitivists, and I've heard the socialists, and I've heard the individualists, and I've heard the egoists, and I've heard the transhumanists. I, I, I feel like I've heard it all, and I've taken what I like about various things, and I've made my own little personal utopian visions, but uh, they're not going to be anarchist. Mm-hmm. It'll be another thing with a different word, you know? Hmm. Anarchism may get me there, but it won't be the thing. It may be the vessel, but not the not the promised land. <laughs> Are you just playing dialectical games? Yeah, probably. <clears throat> it's a it's a good way to like it's a good way to cover one's uh, inadequacies and the holes and the reasoning people have, but not uh, that you're having holes in your reasoning, but well, like the framing that you're using it. I would imagine the the positive vision that you have is certainly anarchistic. The the vision that you have is is emancipatory. I don't know. And without that's a big problem. No, I mean I actually worry about this. Oh, yeah, worry slash, most people conceal your their hearts from you. You know, most most political articulations are a, a, a kind of clever way to to give legitimacy to to justify the kind of bizarre personal desires and utopias that we have. Um, and I guess maybe I'm, I, it's, there's too much effort in cloaking it in ethical or moral justifications that usually come with anarchism. Usually it's kind of like, this is right, this is wrong, the state is evil, <clears throat> capitalism is evil, um, communism is evil, um, subscribe to my belief, subscribe to my theory, I'll get us to the promised land if we just organize how I think we should or if we just reject what I think we should. I mean, in the end, there's. I have a utopia I want. It's not necessarily anarchistic. But I may need, I may need anarchism to get there. What is your end goal? Oh, my positive vision would be something like, living in something like a like a Carsonite village, like a kind of semi-communal village with lots of micro capital and a self-sufficient kind of set of production which you can come and go freely but you're semi-sufficient in terms of producing some kind of product that or stuff that keeps you alive and maybe is valuable in some kind of market but a kind of like semi-communal rurality a kind of techno utopian rurality yeah Mm. something like that a kind of a i don't know it doesn't really matter in terms of what people should be concerned with. Those things matter to me, but there's no reason necessarily that other people should care about those things. But if they accept certain anarchistic attitudes and beliefs, I may get mine and they get, may get theirs. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't I don't need people to actually be interested in distributed techno villages so much as I need them to be interested in the 
norms that would make that possible. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, I don't like cities. I don't want to live in a city. and I, I suffer cities. But a lot of people do like cities. So what am I... What am I to do? I mean, the only thing I can hope for <clears throat> is to, like, somehow be involved in a project that makes it possible to not be subservient to cities, to be able to, like, exit. And whatever I end up doing hopefully fulfills whatever desires I have that I want to die with or whatever. But I think um, it's probably good enough to try and produce a situation that will allow for the fulfillment of a lot of eccentricities that may be particular to me and while other people have the ability to fulfill whatever eccentricities they have, right? Like, and I'll venture to say that may be the height of anarchism, to, like, to not have a plan to produce norms and beliefs that don't propose specific conditions of, like, how people will live their lives, but propose norms and conditions that allow everyone to produce whatever they want to produce as so long as it's like coherently possible, I guess, to, mm-hmm. to some kind of peaceful utopian state. I mean, you don't, <laughs> I can't imagine wanting to constantly be in a state of like defense and retreat mm-hmm. and aggression to kind of maintain whatever utopia anyone's interested in. So it would be nice to produce a system that is like pluralistic and, uh, multicultural in the sense of like one community or individual is practicing a particular thing so long as it's not offensive in some broad sense right but i don't know i mean it's important to recognize the incoherence of what we want where we get is not where anyone's going to plan for us to get and i think it's necessary to kind of prepare for that and to be okay with that and to know that <laughs> enough is as good as a feast right like if it's good enough, it doesn't have to be perfect. You're going to have to make compromises. Right. You're going to have to like settle for shit that's like unpleasant. Mm-hmm. But it could be way better. It could be like heaps better. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to look anything like what we're going through now. And I may have a vision for what I imagine everyone would do, but it doesn't there's no need for that to actually conform to me so long as I get some space to feel comfortable and to you know, have the majority of my days where I wake up happy and excited yeah so I mean if I'm not getting that what's the point I don't I I feel like I could have asked you what anarchism without adjectives is (laughs) right and you could have like given me the same exact answer that would be extremely satisfying for me personally Mm -hmm. I like your vision by the way that's (laughs) cool I would I would totally live in like Techno village, uh, distributed Carsonian techno village right that sounds badass shout out to Carson man Anyway, yeah. What role does anthropology play in your worldview? Um, you know, I I was exposed to a lot of like neo-tribalist thought and utopianism before I was exposed to the anthropology that I think legitimated it. Like I, I can remember sitting in some of the intro anthropology classes and like raising my hand and be like, "So you're telling me." You're wait, hold on, like you're telling me that that fucking agriculture was like a net loss for human happiness. And the professor would be like, "Yeah, of course, oh. yeah, of course." What are you talking about? And I'd be like, "Okay, like, you know, like, oh my god, like Daniel Quinn was right." Like, you know? <laughs> so I mean, one anthropology is just a great uh, bulwark 
it's a great um, arsenal to defend my utopias in one sense. And then, and I mean, in a more, uh, in a better sense, it's, um, God, I mean, I, I don't know, you, you can't, <laughs> in terms of like an anarchist project or any political project, I don't, the importance of anthropology probably can't be overstated because anthropology uh, is, the, is one of the few places that really chronicles the variety of human possibilities. Like, especially anarchists. If anarchists are not familiar with anthropological accounts of stateless societies, uh, and how stateless societies have actually functioned in the past, or now, um, they're missing out on like a gigantic trove of like evidence and structures that could totally uh, give credence to the things they're into, right? Like, because often I think anarchists who lack an understanding of uh, anthropological theory and evidence of stateless societies and how that's totally possible and maybe even the norm for human beings often just talk about and they talk about in terms of like ideals and utopias that they hope to happen and you know people are like oh well you know like uh, the American democracy that was novel you know what we can do is novel too I've said that myself but uh, anthropology gives credence to what we want I think which is statelessness is possible it is doable um, it's reasonable it's, it can last for long periods of time. It, it can be pragmatic and fluid. It, yeah, so one, statelessness is possible and possibly normal. And two, anthropology, the kind of behaviors that, it, that human beings are capable of are expounded upon in anthropology. So like, if you don't know much about how the human animal and human societies have reacted to certain conditions like the introduction of markets or the introduction of firearms or the introduction of different religions or um, responses to like depopulation or migration. Like if you're not familiar with the vast trove of recorded human existence and how humans have actually interacted with each other and set up societies that are foreign to us, then most likely the societies that you imagine could happen are going to be untethered from what is actually reasonable for human beings, right? Like, there is an endless supply of examples of statelessness and peer-to-peer -peer, like, mutualism in the anthropological record. And there's a lot of incredibly surprising stuff about the, how, how one justifies statelessness and why certain, why, like, negative things about statelessness that come up in stateless societies or causes for authoritarianism and stuff like that. And to neglect the anthropological record of like actual people going out and trying to understand like this the the horrifying diversity of human possibility means that they're probably going to be deficient when they actually try and set up their communities because it'd be like there's going to be certain assumptions people make about what's possible what isn't possible what's legitimate what's not the more you know about anthropology the more comfortable you get with the fact that humans can create really complicated societies that may be comfortable for you, right? And so to neglect the record of human possibility, which is anthropology, mm -hmm. is to basically be like, oh, it doesn't matter what humans are capable of and what there's evidence for. We're just going to plow ahead with some kind of reaction to whatever we're opposed to, capitalism, the state, or civilization, or something like that. And that's just kind of, I think, foolish. And it, it, people will try and reinvent the wheel, basically. You know, it's like, it's not necessary. You, you, there, there's plenty of good examples of 
how to interact with people that can actually get things done that people have already done and that don't even need to can think about anarchism. People have done this kind of stuff before anarchism was a kind of articulated theory to these people, right? And so if you want to make human society and you're unwilling to look into the people who are just vigorously trying to record human possibilities for society, I don't know, can you take that person seriously? Like, I, what? I don't know. If you want to live a certain life, there's, there's good places to look to see if it's possible, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think you're going to like this question because <clears throat> you wrote it. Uh-oh. No, shit. What is civilization, and how do we bring the species back home if we've never actually had one? <laughs> yeah, there's a great line in Ursula K. Le Guin's book, when it's taught, uh, The Dispossessed, when... Um, it's some, I think the quote is something like transilience theory, which that's incoherent if you haven't read the book, says that you can return home as long as you realize that home is somewhere you've never been. Yeah, when I kind of romantically refer to like home for the human species, I'm referring to this, the pre-civilized state. Or no, not even that. I shouldn't say that. I should say the uncivilized state, which is roughly, um, it's egalitarian ish sometimes upsettingly not it's stateless ish sometimes horrifyingly not it seems clear to me and this could just be a kind of weird bias i have that like most people are not doing well in our current circumstances under like late capitalism and advanced civilization and even just urban settings i'm not i don't i'm i'm really skeptical that like an urban setting is is anything but pathological to the average human being. Uh, so when I've talked about like going home, I mean getting into getting back to a situation for a normal person where they can like fully express their their humanness in the sense that like the human creature evolved and developed a really complex, interesting lives and societies in non-civilized situations of semi-statelessness and like complex symbolic narratives and interactions and things like that and i'm definitely not advocating a return to foraging or hunting gathering because i don't think that's even it's not possible nor is it a long-term solution like there's a reason that human beings are not foragers anymore for the most part most populations not foragers and any attempt to return to that would probably repeat the process that brought us out of a foraging uh, subsistence mode um, so returning home would uh, not be going back to anything but it would be pushing forward to kind of get past what I think is like an aberrant social situation aka civilization and statism and uh, capitalism into something that once again allows the human creature to exist as a uh, like a a communal hominid that is experiencing reality like fully symbolically and narrative based and things like that that like humans would be relying on humans they would have a pretty good say in the things that happen to them socially and they wouldn't have to live in stressful irritating conditions that i think you know cities are really good at producing like i think cities are just terribly uh stressful and irritating to, to a normal human being i think that's, that's what i can tell so going home does not mean regressing to foraging but to, to pressing 
pressing on past civilization and capitalism into something comfortable for humans again, where they get to express their humanity as a creature, but not be impoverished, but, you know, to be enriched, you know, to go back home, but with new tools and and ideas and stories, right? Kind of post-civilization, whatever that is. Because I'm I'm worried that um, if humans stay in the civilized condition for too long, they'll cease to be meaningfully human. That what what we're being made into is not not recognizable. It's there's no there's there will be less and less relationship to um, Homo sapiens, and then some other thing which I don't respect or have an interest in will be the dominant in- creature. Uh, and I don't want that, so I, I would rather the human species escape from that future and pursue a future that's that makes the hominid happy and makes the hominid fulfilled, but doesn't return us to a state of pre-civilized state in which we'll just repeat ourselves and you know be subject to ecology and you know the whims of neighbors and stuff like that necessarily. So going home means recreating the conditions that human that make human beings happy. And I don't think the conditions right now are very good at making people happy. And pre-civilized conditions, I think, made human beings really happy. But those are not, op- those are not open to us anymore. And so we'll have to figure out something post-civilized that hopefully is even better. I'm going to list some things. Uh-huh. Uh, either ideas or people. And I would like you to give a, a response. Red. A minute or less. And feel free to pass if you don't feel like responding to them. Okay. <laughs> the Spanish anarchist revolution. Uh, you know, it's hard to object to anything that George Orwell was uh, was really into, right? I'm a big fan of Orwell, and uh, he loved it. Um, it was a good attempt, and it was a it was a big failure, in in both the ways that people usually tell anarchists they're going to fail, that is, they will be destroyed by an outside aggressor, which Spanish anarchism largely was by the Soviet Union, and then and then Franco's fascists. It was a great attempt, and it was a great thing for inspiration, but it was, it was nothing like what I'm interested in. It was, the, there were certain ideals which were great in terms of, like, fraternity and liberation from clergy and the state, and maybe capitalism, but it, it falls far short of what I'm interested in. There's not much distinct that distinguishes it from like a Marxist revolution, except an attempt to give workers more say and give workers more pleasure and more meaning. And that's a good thing, but it's not necessarily what I'm interested in. I, I am interested in those things, but only insofar as people are happy. And you can democratize a factory but the factory remains, <laughs> you know, yeah. that may not be ideal. That's, that's, that's a bizarre, that's a shitty thing to say. Cause you're basically saying like, was it, you know, I mean, they were doing the best they fucking could yeah, yeah. and it was great in a lot of ways. And if you read Orwell's descriptions of what it was like in Catalonia at the height of it, he, he was, you know, it blew his mind and it blew my mind to read about it. I couldn't, it sounded incredible. Mm. Um, but there were a lot of nasty stuff about it. It's not ideal, but it was a good attempt. Yeah. Yeah. Good on them. <laughs> Curtis Stan. Um, a good attempt. You know, um, I think <laughs> if you talk to Hakanto and Jacob and Megan about this, 
you might get different levels of like enthusiasm about it. I'm really excited about it. Um, and by Kurdistan, I think you know we're talking about like the PKK and Rojava and yeah. that kind of stuff, as opposed to like Iraqi Kurdistan, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily libertarian. Right. There's, if someone says that is not an anarchist project, they're they the, what they're saying makes sense. In a lot of ways, it's it's not. It doesn't fulfill like individualist anarchist or or like libertine desires and hopes. Like you know, it's not like Cicero and people are like would be happy with the place. Or Sterner would be happy with it necessarily, I think, but it certainly is an it's an improvement upon like what seems like feudal patriarchal brutality of the space, right? Like it certainly Rojava is, is preferable to like Syria, you know, Syrian state control or Turkish state control or Islamic state control. Um, and I think the problem, <laughs> the main issue here is I don't want to deny it as an anarchist project because I don't think there's a real clear understanding of what anarchy might be because there's no good clear understanding of what freedom is and there's no good understanding of what equality is. And so these things are only meaningful in a context of individuals and uh, you know, socially dependent people. And if they feel that they are freer and if they feel they are more equal in ways that they like, you can't deny that it's like a, a good anarchist project. So, I mean... Yeah, my, my judgment is simply that, like, I'm horrified that Turkey may destroy it. Like, I, that's the last thing I want. Like, if anything, I, I just want it to flourish mm-hmm. and be successful and be amazing and be able to visit. But it doesn't necessarily reflect what I would like to live in. But I am excited to see people maybe trying to make what a situation they think is more free and more equal. And in that sense, it is an anarchist project. But in other senses, it's not, right? It's not necessarily pluralistic. And a lot of people will say it is, and people disagree with me, and I don't know a lot about it, but it seems better than nothing. It's not perfect, and it's, it's kind of nasty in some ways, but it seems kind of beautiful in a lot of ways. So, you know, I'm for it. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson. Uh, you know, by our standards today, he's, he's a monstrous hypocrite. But thank God he existed. Like, thank, thank, you know, it's it's a tremendous stroke of luck that he had something to do with the creation of the, the current state, that he had such a bizarre set of beliefs in terms of um, freedom from religion and the freedom of religion and distribution of power. Um... In terms of our own morals today, he's a monster. But in terms of the, the morals and the ethics and the norms of the time, he was a, a rabid anarchist, basically. Um, he was a racist, and he was a slave owner, and he was a hypocrite, and he was, and he was a hedonist in such a way that really damaged his life and damaged his legacy. But um, his beliefs are, some of his beliefs are like fundamental to my personal interests and personal beliefs like a kind of distributed agrarian society of like equals interacting on a local level to blah 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 blah. um there is no there is no coherent united states or even modernity without jefferson's influence and i think american anarchism is meaningless without reference to jefferson despite his like you know terrible failures and he was a racist uh there's more, you can maybe say more negative things about him in terms of what we prioritize today, but 
um, American anarchism is, 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 is he's one of the founding fathers of it, right? Like Benjamin Tucker called himself an unterrified Jeffersonian. Mm-hmm. And I would say in many ways, I can't deny that I myself am a Jeffersonian, if not a kind of social uh, utopian or Jeffersonian or something like that. He's, uh, all you can say about him is he's indispensable to our current condition and our current trajectory, especially in like Anglo-American utopianism. His legacy is so seductive that there's 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 good reason to both to both embrace his legacy and his his ideas and to be really skeptical of every claim. I think he was great, but he was like a monster. And uh, mm. the only legitimate course forward, if you want to call yourself a Jeffersonian, I think, is to acknowledge. His, like the terrible failings that you know we would acknowledge now because of like our understanding of the human species and race and justice and freedom like what we take for granted now um you gotta you gotta admit to the fact that it, he he fell far far short from even his ideals and especially our ideals now but that guy was said some insanely revolutionary things that i think we could all applaud it's just he just fell short he's a terrible hypocrite but we enjoy the benefit of his existence today and maybe take it for granted. Yeah. And I think becoming familiar with him now is excellent. People yeah. should definitely be aware of like his writings and man, he's great, but he was a monster. David Graeber. David Graeber. Um, he's great. Read his books, read David Graeber. If you don't read David Graeber, you're doing a huge disservice to yourself and to whatever project you got going on. David Graeber has lived in stateless societies. He has studied stateless societies. David Graeber is an activist. He, he not only chronicles exotic societies, which is what anarchists or anthropologists... One of the critiques of anarchist or anthropology is that often it's a kind of like colonial project to kind of be a voyeur towards the exotic, right? And be like, ooh, look at these interesting things. And... Um, you like almost fetishize different kinds of societies and weird little things that may be interesting. But Graeber has a, has a wide breadth of work that spans both what might be exotic to the average American or European or Westerner, but then he also has lots of work concerning just us and why those things are meaningful to us. You know, like he's, there's no separation between his, his anarchism and his morals and his, his work he is attempting to make a lot of really interesting anthropological work uh, available to a normal person. And any self-respecting anarchist should, any person who wants a better society should consult anthropology. But anarchists especially should, without a doubt, consult anarchist anthropologists. And uh, David Graeber is accessible, he is humble, he is interested, he is willing to attempt and fail and critique things that he's interested in and explore things that he's uncomfortable with. His, his work is great, and he's indispensable. Anyone, any anarchist or libertarian disregards him at their own cost. If you were to name two or three books or thinkers that were major intellectual influences on you, what would they be? Um, the anthropologist Benedict Anderson has a book called Imagine Communities, he really articulate. I mean, the book is about the rise of nationalism and uh, the history of nationalism and how people imagine themselves as part of groups. And uh, after reading that, suddenly 
you, you, you see it everywhere. The constant attempt to produce groups and imagined groups that you don't even know, but to kind of justify these, these pe- people you think are interested in what you're interested in or should be or what you're going to do with people. Like it's, yeah, Benedict Anderson's Magic Communities is amazing. Definitely need to read that. Um, I probably got started on anarchism because of Daniel Quinn's books. He wrote uh, Ishmael and the story of B and uh, my Ishmael and stuff like that. His books are great. They, they're they a kind of revisionism of, of what we're, our standard narrative is about uh, their cultural revolution and why human beings are constantly looking for people to tell them how they live because we don't actually know how to live anymore, whereas our ancestors our ancestors maybe did know how to live. Yeah, Daniel Quinn is amazing. Um, Andrew Bard Schmuckler, he's a journalist and a, I don't know if he's really a journalist so much as like a, just an author who writes a lot of articles. He wrote a book called The Parable of the Tribes, uh, The Problem of Power and Social Evolution. The problem he articulates in that about intersocietal anarchy after the, what we call the agricultural revolution. I don't think it's accurately called the agricultural revolution, but what we, what we call that event. He articulates a major issue in human societal development, which we have not solved yet. And until we solve it, um, most political projects are doomed to fail. And so I think his, his book, Parable of the Tribes, is indispensable. And um, Carson, Kevin Carson. And shout out to that guy. That guy I, I'd be a liar if I didn't call myself in some sense a Carsonite or Carsonian. He, he's, that guy is pumping out work. And uh, I, don't know who, I don't know what my beliefs would be if, they weren't, if we didn't have some kind of reference to Carson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ursula K. Le Guin. Ursula K. Le Guin, like her books on imagining different kinds of lives for people and how the stories we tell ourselves allow those kinds of lives. Her books are incredible, The Hainish Cycle. Kim Stanley Robinson, he's another sci-fi author. He wrote uh, like the Mars Trilogy. Uh, I think a lot of my utopias are just reimaginings of Robinson's utopias. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's... No one talks about sci-fi enough. So mm-hmm. I'm, I, my utopias probably reflect sci-fi readings and video games more than they do uh, academic works of, you know, social theorizing and stuff like that. So I don't know. That stuff's more fun. That, I mean, that's the other thing, man. If, if you don't make things that are fun, why should... No one's going to care about them, right? Like, how do you get, like, a normal person to read some tome of theoretical analysis of capitals or something like that? But if you make it an interesting story, sci-fi or just contemporary or something like that, that moves you. Because you're not going to do anything unless you are moved to do something, right? Like, you don't know anything until you feel the thing. And... Uh, fiction probably does that better than nonfiction, honestly. Mm-hmm. So like Schmuckler and, and um, Carson, those guys produce really important data, but Le, Le Guin, Robinson, Quinn, those people produce stories that move you, and yeah, there's more fuel in those things than there is in nonfiction, honestly. Yeah, people should get really excited about whimsical fantasy. Those things are, that's what makes like utopians. And utopians are what make different worlds. <laughs> Is there anything I forgot to ask you that you'd like to touch on before we end the interview? You know, the one thing I think that's important to touch is 
is that for all like the theoretical wrangling around anarchism and society and a behavior that we we think is decent or good or what how like wanting to end capitalism or wanting to end statism or wanting to end civilization and wanting to produce a life outside those things and the kind of theories that articulate how and why those things all pale in comparison to developing like kindness there's nothing more revolutionary than like being a lovely person right like there's not much a departure from normalcy to posit that we can live some different life. There's nothing distinctly revolutionary about like, oh, but what if we wasn't capitalist, right? Or, you know what, I have this idea and it's not civilized. That's <laughs> like that's that's within the norm of just like people wanting something different and the kind of Hegelian dialectic of us being like, oh, I don't like the things about now what if it wasn't like that <laughs> we can live you know that's normal there's nothing those things are great i like those things i obsess over those things but the most like revolutionary thing people can do is to be compassionate to be like kind to be lovely to like to to give aid to the stranger and to like try to understand your enemy and to 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 be sweet to evil people that is like fundamentally alien that that's like alien to history in my opinion um that's alien to base animal interests people can produce whatever goddamn utopia they want like some kind of communist uh just giving and receiving and brotherhood but if it's not kind, if it's not like gentle and forgiving and sweet, it's, it's going to be in some ways more the same. You have to be able to produce the individual experience of, of loveliness, right? Like if anarchists neglect compassion, they will always fall back into the pitfalls that lead people into authoritarianism and xenophobia and to attack the other and more we more than we need like utopian visions and aggression against our oppressors oppressors we we need the ability to look at the other whether or not it's the cop or the governor or the fascist or the anarchist or the republican or the democrat or something like that we need the ability to look at the other and to be like to be kind to them, to like give them, like, it sounds silly, to, to, to love your enemy in, in a weird way. Like, if no one exercises that, then it's probably all for naught, or it's probably temporary, or, I mean, it is going to be temporary, what do we do, but the, the singular act of kindness, even if it lasts a second, is more grand and utopian and humane than even the most wild utopian project or even successful revolution, like a hand held out to the stranger beats any utopian project. It is, it is the basest, greatest, <laughs> most profound act people can do. And that's what I would say is like more important than anti-capitalism, more important than freedom, more important than equality is, is the ability for a person to like regard their enemy or a stranger with with kindness kind of that's more important yeah yeah
Because <laughs> it's there's no need to do that. You can get what you 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 can imagine getting what you want by winning against your enemies, but it's nowhere near as revolutionary as making your enemy into your brother. You know. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. All right, Clay. <laughs> thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. We've had a hell of a time. For sure. <laughs> so we gonna get fucked up now or? What? <laughs> it's that Blink-182 juice. <laughs>